0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 16. We're looking tonight at verses 1 through 21, and then chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 1. Hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning the mothers who bore them, the fathers who fathered them in this land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground, they shall perish by the sword, and by famine and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. For thus saith the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament or grieve for them, for I have taken away my peace from this people. My steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord, both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner, to comfort him for the dead. Nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. You shall not go into the house of feasting, to sit with him, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place, before your eyes and in your days, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods, and served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law, and because you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, every one of you follows his own stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. First, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols, and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth, and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things, in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond that's engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherim. Beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in the land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to study your word tonight. We ask, Father, for the help of your spirit, and we ask for receptive hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we've seen before, the prophets communicate to the people to whom the Lord sends them, not just with words, although most often through words, but also through signs or through symbolic gestures, We've already seen that uh, with Jeremiah earlier, the, uh, the loincloth that he was to take and bury and then go and retrieve, the jars that were filled with wine and other kinds of symbols, or we think of Ezekiel and things that the Lord had him do. Uh, but sometimes those signs are so closely connected to the prophet that you could say the prophet doesn't just bring a message to the people. The prophet is himself the message, whether through how he dresses or through some symbolic uh, uh, action or his behavior. And, and such is the case here in Jeremiah. Uh, we've already seen with Jeremiah that he, he tended to uh, be reserved in his behavior toward the people, and that becomes even more evident now as the Lord gives instructions to him. Now, as we look at this passage, we see in the first place the withdrawal of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah withdraws from much of the social life of his people and of his village, and he does so in obedience to the command of God. Uh, Part of that withdrawal includes, on his part, uh, what was quite likely a, a painful instruction, and that is that he was not to marry. Notice in uh, verse two, the, the word of the Lord came to me: "You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place." The Lord instructs Jeremiah that he is not to marry. Now, as has been pointed out, there is no word in Hebrew for bachelor. This was an odd condition. Uh, it was it was the normal thing. It was for someone to marry, and especially in in a village of Anathoth where Jeremiah was. Uh, that would have been odd that he did not marry, that uh, apparently, uh, even in the face of opportunity, he chose not to marry and, and therefore not to have children. But why not? Well, that refusal of matrimony was itself a communication. The Lord said not to marry. Why? Verse 3. Well, thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who were born in this place and their mothers and their fathers. They shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented. They shall not be buried. We've already seen that as a a horrid condition, not to be buried, but for one's body simply to be left out as food. But this is a picture of the the oncoming destruction that they would experience. And because of the very short-term prospects for Judah because of the intense suffering that was to come, Jeremiah was not to marry. And when someone says, well, Jeremiah, why why didn't you ever marry? Well, it wasn't just God said not to, but his declining to marry was testimony of the suffering that is to come. So part of his withdrawal involves this, this refusal to marry. But then along with that suffering... Part of his withdrawal involves a uh, a refusal to show sympathy. Look at verse 5. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament, or grieve for them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, my steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is not to go to visit those who are mourning, to those who are suffering. He's not even to send a sympathy card. It's not to participate in that, because that itself is a sign of God's withdrawing his own consolations from his people. The Lord says, I have taken away my peace, my steadfast love, and my mercy. So not only is he not to marry, but in the face of suffering that inevitably people endure in this life, and even the, uh, that suffering as it grows more intense uh, in the siege and so forth, he is not to show mercy. He's not to himself be a comforter as a sign of God's withdrawing his peace, that this is God's judgment. Verse 6, both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. No one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. Some obscure references, obviously uh, expressions of grief, uh, whether uh, pagan in the nature of cutting oneself uh, as as a pagan expression of grief, The point is, uh, no one is showing sympathy, and Jeremiah is leading the way with that. Uh, No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him, give him a cup of consolation. No marriage, no sympathy for those who are in suffering, and no feasting. No joining in celebration or in the feasting of his community. Verse 8, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with him to eat and drink. Why not? For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So Jeremiah, instead of participating in feasts or celebrations, is to uh, separate himself from that. Why? Again, a sign. A sign that the day is coming when mirth and celebration and feasting will be no more. And Jeremiah's abstaining from all of that is a a foretaste of what is to come. As uh, someone summarized it, Jeremiah was forbidden to marry, forbidden to mourn, forbidden to mingle. He basically made himself a social outcast. And no doubt his behavior would be seen as odd, as distant, as off-putting, if not offensive. But there was meaning there. There was method in his madness. He was obeying the Lord. He was communicating to the people by these actions, by his withdrawal, the withdrawal of God in his mercy, in his peace, in his grace, in his presence from his people. So the withdrawal of Jeremiah. Well, what's it all about? Well, that brings a second then to the judgment of God. We've seen the withdrawal of Jeremiah, the judgment of God that that represents. Now, by this point, we've gotten a lot of judgment in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was probably as tired of talking about judgment as you are hearing about judgment. A couple things to remember. Uh, As Jeremiah the book in our Bible moves on, it it does move on to other things, takes up other topics and so forth. Uh, But it's also worth remembering that we need to be reminded of the reality of judgment. Now, you and I are not in the place of Judah. We are not... I trust living in rebellion against God, open disobedience, uh, open idolatry, and so there is a sense in which this this repeated and emphatic message of judgment and call to repentance misses us because that's not where we are. We are people who, by God's grace, want to follow Christ, want to honor the Lord, want to obey the Lord, but we need to hear this message of judgment for two reasons. One. Apart from God's grace, this is where we would be. And two, all around us are people for whom this warning of judgment is a very relevant and very much appropriate message, indeed. There's something about us that says "Eh, maybe God's not serious. Maybe you know, at the end of the day, He'll 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 be lenient. But God makes it plain against Israel and Judah. But also against all people in all places that, apart from his mercies in Christ, they are under the wrath and judgment of God. And the way this, this, these verses on judgment start is so typical. In fact, the judgment of God is, is captured by three different images here. First of all, the images of the image of bratty children. Look at verse ten. When you tell this, pe- this people all these words. You know, you explain to them why you're not married, and why you don't send them sympathy cards, why you don't uh why you, why you don't celebrate with them different things in life. And they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? Yeah, you know, you're kind of just wanting to say, What? You know, they don't know. But that's just you know, we've seen that. We've seen that in our children, we've seen that in adults. You know, what have I done? What did I do wrong? You know, you speak to your child and say, What? What? What did I do? You know, and they know full well what they did. But this, this this very innocent look, astounded that you might find fault with the fact they slugged their brother, their sister, whatever it might be. What? What did I do? That's exactly the response of Judah to Jeremiah. To these symbolic actions. And they said, what, what sin have we done that the Lord is threatening all these judgments? The image of bratty children. You know, just amazed that someone would find fault with them. Well, the Lord answers that. Verse 11, you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, gone off after other gods and served and worshipped them. Uh, and, and indeed they did. They uh, did. Going way back, but even more recently, kings like Manasseh and and, and others who sinned against God. But it wasn't just their fathers. Verse 12, because you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. If those words don't characterize our human condition in its fallenness, Nothing does. Very, very concise, very succinct. Every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will. Refusing to listen to me. And let's start with that. We, we have our will. We do what we want to do. That will is described as evil. It's polluted by sin. It's stubborn, even in the face of correction. It wants to have its way. Then we refuse to listen to the Lord. That, that's who we are by nature. That's who we are. In our fallenness, And as a result of that, God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to throw you from here to Babylon. I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. You want to worship pagan deities? Fine. I'll send you into Babylon. You'll be surrounded by them. You can worship them all day long. There's another image of judgment here that, that we find, and that is of... The image of being hunted, the image of being caught like a a fish. Look at verses 16 through 18. Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. Afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill, and out of the clefts of the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they polluted my land, they defiled it, with the carcasses of their detestable idols have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So this image here of the Lord sending fishermen after them, sending hunters after them to rout them out, to find them, to catch them because of their sin. Another image here that God uses as to their sin in his judgment, one of the bratty children of being hunted and caught, uh, but also just an image of, of, of persistence, of, Resolute stubbornness. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It's engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. Horns being the the points of the, the corners, upper corners of the altar that often were sort of curved up to help hold the Wood, or maybe the animal itself on the top of the altar, uh, often in, in, in services of, of sacrifice, blood would be taken it would be put on those points or the horns of the altar. And not only they, but their children. Verse 2, their children remember their altars and their Asherim, uh, the, the, the pagan deities beside every green tree on the high hills, the mountains in the open country. Very sad, not only they, but their children, of course, who learn by their example and their teaching, are out worshiping pagan deities, violating uh, what we saw last week, is the great commandment of Scripture, the Lord, love the Lord your God with all of your being. Well, they're out serving these various deities, pagan deities. The Lord says, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil is the price of your high places for sin. These pagan worship sites throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage I gave you. I'll make you to serve your enemies in a land you don't know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. So each of these images depicts their sinfulness, but also the Lord's judgment and his response to their sinfulness. And again, we just find emphasized God's hatred for sin. God says, in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Do you take sin that seriously? Do I? Or do we presume on God's grace? We do those things that provoke such a, a vehement and scary response from God. Nothing else and all these threats of judgment, just be reminded how much God hates our sin, how much revulsion He feels. That his eyes really are too pure to even look on such stuff. Because in our culture, we minimize sin. And we, we explain it. We rationalize it. We excuse it. We deny it altogether. There's no such thing as sin. And he'll tell God that. Because God hates sin. And Jeremiah teaches us that. And these threats of judgment teach us that. But in the middle of all of that, there's something very. Startling. There's not here just the withdrawal of Jeremiah as symbolic of God's withdrawal of his favor and blessing and grace on his people. There's not just here the threats of God's judgment in response to the braddiness of his people and then their running from him and the, the persistence in sin. Not just the judgment of God, but there's here the grace of God. The grace of God, the grace of God on his own people in Judah. Look at verses 14 through 15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave their fathers. Right there in the middle of all these threats of judgment, the Lord says, you know, the day is going to come when people precede an oath, not in the old way. In the old way, they look back to God's great redemption of his people out of Egypt. You know, under Moses, that was, that was their salvation. They looked back on the exodus the way that you and I looked back on the cross. And when God brought his people out of bondage in Egypt, uh, miraculously, powerfully, against all odds, uh, and then saves them again there at the the shore of the Red Sea as the Egyptian army comes out. And so people would say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But God says they're going to stop saying that one day. But instead, they're going to start saying, as the Lord lives, who brought his people out. Out of the north country and all those countries to which he had driven. Right there in the middle of these threats of exile, the Lord says, you know, the day's coming when people are going to comment on the fact that I brought them back out of the north, out of Babylon. And of course he did. As the Bible goes on to teach us, the Lord did bring his people out. Because he says, I'll bring them back right here in the middle of this. I'll bring them out of their land that I gave to their And so this grace is, is mentioned here toward Judah and returning them to the land. But there's more. Not just God's grace to Judah, but God's grace to the nations. Look at verse 19. O Lord, my strength, my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, this sounds like something Jeremiah would say, but this is actually the pagan nations now saying this. Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Remember when Jonah was fleeing from the Lord and he's on the ship headed for Tarshish and the storm comes up and the the ship is tossed and the sailors are doing everything they can to save the ship and they start praying and they discover Jonah asleep there in the bowels of the ship and they say, you know, plead with your God that he might deliver us. And Jonah explains who he is and what's what's happening and um, and eventually what they have to do to save their ship, namely toss Jonah into the sea. But there's great irony there because Jonah's the one running from God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And Jonah's running from God. Jonah's hiding in the ship, even as these pagan sailors are crying out to their gods, praying for deliverance. And finally, even after Jonah tells them what they have to do, they try not to do that. And they finally realize there's there's no other alternative but to do as Jonah says and throw them. And so they, say, they pray and pray that God would have mercy on them and not hold Jonah's life against them. There's huge irony there that Jonah, the servant of the Lord, is running from God. And it's these pagan sailors who are praying to their own deities and then acknowledging Jonah's deity. But they're the ones doing the praying. They're the ones calling on the names of their gods. And they're the ones, finally, who uh, ask for Jonah's God to be merciful to them in spite of their tossing him into the sea as an act, presumably, of obedience to him. Well, there's great irony in this passage, as these nations, these Gentile nations, pagan nations, come from the ends of the earth. And they say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there's no profit. Acknowledging that, whereas Israel, who is heir to this vast treasure of God's revelation, God's word, God's redemptive acts, counts that worthless and turns aside from it. The pagans say, we acknowledge that we've inherited nothing but lies, nothing but worthless things in which there's no profit. And then verse 20, can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. That's exactly what Judah was doing. She was making gods and worshiping them as if they were gods. Tossed her inheritance out like a mess of pottage, began worshiping pagan deities, Baal, Asherah poles, all that kind of stuff. And the very nations are coming to the Lord saying, you know, we've inherited all this pagan stuff. Can we make gods? These things aren't gods. See the contrast. See the irony there. You see the grace of God there. He is going to restore Judah to her land. But he's going to do much more than that. His grace is going to extend to the nations. So that even the nations, even the pagans, even the Gentiles will see the waywardness and see the error and see the folly in turn to the one true and living God. And therefore, verse 21, behold... I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. That's grace. That God would turn us from what has been described as the stubborn, evil will of our hearts. To know the power and might of the Lord in Christ Jesus, that they shall know that my name is the Lord. And you'll notice again, large caps. Not just that I'm the master, but I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, I am the God of the covenant. The nations will know me by my covenant name. And that's fulfilled even here, as you and I are here tonight, worshiping the Lord, acknowledging that the idols of our hearts are worthless things, and that the Lord is the one true God, and he is our covenant Lord in Christ Jesus. They shall know that my name is. Is the Lord, the name he gave to Moses when he said, Who shall I say sent me? The Lord. Well, as we've said, God's word to Jeremiah is not directly his word to us because you and I are not in the place where Judah was. And the specific instructions of the Lord to Jonah, or or to Jeremiah rather, are not his word to us. Because you see, this gospel age in which we live is a time for weddings, it is a time for comforting those who are suffering, and it is a time to celebrate, a time to feast. Christians may marry. Uh, Yes, we recognize that the day of judgment is coming, but as Christians we recognize that we look forward not to death, but to life. Christians may attend funerals and weep with those who weep, but particularly for those in Christ, we don't weep as those who have no hope, because we have a Savior who has conquered death, Christians may engage in holy celebration. We have every every reason to celebrate and to feast. Quote one writer, Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We ought to be preoccupied with parties and banquets and feasts and merriment. We ought to give ourselves to celebrations of joy because we've been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the sheer pleasure there is in being a Christian. And so we do feast. We celebrate. We feast in one another's houses, enjoying fellowship. We feast at first Sunday lunch, because of what we share in Christ. We feast on great holy days, feast days, Easter. We feast at Christmas. We feast at the Lord's Supper. And when we are with the Lord in glory, we will feast, we will celebrate at the wedding supper of the Lamb. There may be those whom the Lord calls to a life of singleness for a particular reason. But by and large, in this gospel age, we marry. And we console and comfort and encourage one another. And we feast and celebrate together. Because in Christ Jesus, we have not the Lord's judgment, but the Lord's blessing, his favor, his life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Father, we thank you that by your grace we will never know, we will never experience what Jesus experienced on the cross. Father, we thank you that he did experience that for us, what we deserved. That this awful judgment of which Jeremiah speaks was poured out on Jesus, not on us. Father, we pray that we would be filled with joy because of what you've done for us, because of what lies ahead for us, because of what we enjoy even now. And, Father, we pray uh, that we would be characterized by a devotion to your will, to your word, to your truths. Keep us from the lies and the idols of our day. Father, we recognize our hearts are prone to pursue those things. But, Lord, keep us close to you. Chain us to yourself. Fix our eyes on Jesus that we might walk with you in new life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.